Welcome to At The Edge. Across this podcast series, we will bring together voices from across industry and academia to consider the role of IoT and cybersecurity in achieving net zero. This week, we discuss the role of IoT in wildlife conservation, from safeguarding data in the field to thwarting the illegal wildlife trade. We discuss this and everything in between. I think there's one spot in the jar where you might be able to get one of the providers if you stand in a ladder with your sort of left arm out. If someone can introduce bias into the data that's being used to train these machine learning models, then we might see them making decisions that favour those corrupt officials. It's too easy to look at our elephants and rhinos and see that as the only problem. These are all things we consider as we discuss IoT at the edge of wildlife conservation. Today we are joined by Matthew Bradbury. Matthew is a lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. He completed his PhD at the University of Warwick, where he investigated and developed techniques to provide source location privacy in wireless sensor networks. His current work involves researching approaches to develop secure, multi-tenanted applications on resource-constrained IoT devices and generalised approaches to providing context privacy in cyber-physical systems. Matthew, hello. Hello, great to be here. Great to have you. And Matthew is joined by Grant Miller, MBE. Grant is Zoological Society London's counter-trafficking advisor and works as part of its efforts to tackle the illegal wildlife trade. Grant joined ZSL from UK Border Force, where he led the CITES enforcement team for seven years. He spent 30 years in Border Force and its predecessors HMRC and HMCE. He was also chair of Interpol's Wildlife Crime Working Group from 2017 to 2019, where he worked on their groundbreaking initiative, Operation Thunder. Zoological Society of London is a charity devoted to the worldwide conservation of animals and their habitats. Grant, thank you for joining us. Yeah, good morning. Lovely to be with you this morning. Excellent. So we'll jump straight in. It feels very much like a a race between those trying to protect and conserve wildlife and those trying to take advantage of it for illicit gain. Who's winning that race at the moment? Conservationists or poachers or smugglers? For me, I'm the optimist. I think we're winning the race at the moment. I think there's a huge way for us to go. But I think if we just look at the dialogue that we now see nightly on the news, that we're seeing government leaders speak about the climate change issue, the issues of plastic in our oceans, overfishing, etc. We certainly have got the public support. I think now we've actually realised that, for me, that the environmental issues we face will affect every one of us. And it's for every part of industry, of academia, of social society to pull together and actually try to find solutions. We see that within the transport sector with companies like BP World stepping up and actually supporting the zoo in its conservation work. And that probably five, ten years ago would have been something that we would never have thought that a major transport company or on a tech company, Google, Microsoft, the DiCaprio Foundation, all these bodies coming together to actually work to pull the world together. But I certainly wouldn't play down the challenges that we face. But I'm confident, you know, that we're an innovative species that, you know, the solutions and with the support of nature, you know, it's a battle we can win. And I think I have to agree with Grant here. I'm optimistic, but with a note of caution that um, 
Potentially, it's just the cybersecurity background that I'm a little bit uh, pessimistic. But as we've had so many successes, there is the chance of, say, advanced persistent threats that are not entirely obvious in the way that they're acting, but they're potentially trying to be stealthy. They're not taking the easy wins, and they're taking a much longer view of trying to poach animals or sort of get them across sort of country lines. And they see there's potentially larger profit if we can wait a little bit of time and do some more serious actions at that point in the future. Matthew, given your previous research on the ways that technology for conservation can be bypassed or undermined by adversaries, could you tell us a bit more about the risks of monitoring wildlife through IoT? How can this all go wrong? From the cybersecurity background, we always think about how adversaries will make the systems work against you. So if you've spent a huge amount of money deploying your infrastructure to monitor and look after these animals that you're trying to protect, you don't want your adversaries to be taking advantage of them and using them to actually capture sort of the wildlife that you're trying to protect. So I think in terms of the technology, we very much tend to focus on information transmission and protection of it. So a lot of the assumption is that the data that's being gathered by these sensors is going to be encrypted and that an adversary is not going to be able to observe that encrypted data. But that's not the entire story because there'll be unencrypted data contained within the headers of these messages that an adversary might be able to use. And there's also contextual information that sending those messages reveals to an adversary. So for example, if you have a sensor attached to an animal, if that is event-driven, then there might be cases where an adversary is able to say, oh, I can see that something has happened. So the maybe the animal has changed location and you want an update on where that location is. And those events can potentially be revealed to the adversary by them observing what is happening in the environment. So this might be just looking at the signal strength, the direction that wireless communication comes from, the time at which events happen. So it's important not just to think about protecting our information security, but also providing this kind of context privacy so we obscure an adversary from being able to gain too much information from these contextual signals. And how do you do that? How do you apply context privacy? So this is something that is one of my current research interests. So I'm very interested in looking at what novel solutions can we come up here. Some of the key ways are doing perturbations of when this information is stored, perturbing the communication. So rather than sending at full signal strength, you might want to reduce your signal strength. You might want to uh, gather uh, multiple messages together. So rather than saying the animal has now changed location, maybe you send a report at the end of the day. But the issue here is that we still need to be gathering high quality information that is timely and useful for conservation. So it's important that the context privacy solutions we're applying don't lead to a large enough decrease in the utility of these systems that don't make them particularly useful. So there's a difficult trade-off that we need to make here. Mm, yeah, efficacy versus security is, is always the balance, isn't it? Indeed. And I'd like to talk about the people involved in these systems to protect wildlife. We're developing these smart technologies, these smart systems, 
but it's the rangers, it's the people on the ground that are being informed by that information in terms of their actions. You know, the technology alone isn't going to isn't going to save an animal or protect an animal from harm. Grant, could you tell us a bit more about what you see with the people that you work with? Yeah, I'm very fortunate to work with some incredible people in in some of the poorest countries in the world. I've just returned from Benin. We've been in Niger and Cameroon. I've travelled to all during COVID. When it comes to technology, let's be completely honest, they do not have access to technology. Those who have access to a laptop are seen as being you know, fairly groundbreaking. You know, it's not that they're not educated, many have degrees, but it's access to that type of technology that just simply is unavailable. And ZSL, as part of our grant-funded work, looks to bring that type of skill in. One of the big challenges in the environment area is we are not swimming in money. You know, every penny that is brought into the zoo that goes towards conservation and protecting it's money well spent, but there's never enough. 100% there's never enough. The individuals themselves, they work in really tough conditions in the Jar Natural Reserve. It's probably one of the most hostile jungles that I've ever worked in. Very, very densely packed, very difficult to move through, and a really challenging work environment, let alone trying to uh, deliver the, the deployment of technology. You know, we've just done a survey of the area looking at key species in there, and it did go back to setting up an old grid system with you know, rolls of string uh, to actually mark out where the elephant dung was and where we could see the populations because there is no GPS signal in the area. You're right out there in the middle. There's you know, I think there's one spot in the jar where you might be able to get one of the providers if you stand on a ladder with your sort of left arm out. So really, really challenging environment to deploy technology in. Excellent. And, you know, it, it's all well and good parachuting into a place with some new technology and new information and new ways of working. But I'd be curious to know how you work with local people in terms of understanding their knowledge and bringing that into the systems and solutions you're designing. Yes, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of work goes on with communities and one of our major focuses is communities. The day of the colonial power, as you've described, parachuting in and saying this is how to do it, long, long gone. Conservation now is done with the consent of the local people for the local people. So ZSL, we do nothing unless the local people actually say we want this. It's not for us to tell them how to manage their resources. But we can do that. And partnership is a key word that is coming through ZSL in all our activities. We will do what we're good at. But if someone's better at something else, we'll bring them in, we'll work with them, we'll collaborate. Because that's the best way to see money that is in short supply being spent most effectively. In Cameroon specifically, I'll go back to uh, the JAR. Um, we patrol with the local backup people who are the local indigenous communities around there. They form part of the patrol. That serves two purposes. One, as you've touched on, you get their bushcraft, their local knowledge, their experience, but also it ensures when enforcement are patrolling an area that the local community has eyes on the human rights issues that could 
come out that may occur, abuses and things like that, and they have a mechanism to report back. So critically important that the locals understand what you're trying to do, what the aims are, and that they understand what the potential benefits of that can be. The people really are key. So even if we have all of our technological solutions deployed, this really does need to feed into the people on the ground that are trying to prevent the poachers from doing bad things. And it's that kind of interactions that we just need to make sure that uh, future work definitely keeps forwarding useful information to those people that are actively engaged in protecting the wildlife. I think that's a fantastic point that you make, is actually getting that knowledge into organisations. And as part of the Interpol family, when I was with the Wildlife Crime Working Group, we have an annual conference, which was traditionally for enforcement officers to get together and you know, talk over the latest issues. And over the last five years, we've really recognised that academia needs to have a voice. We need to understand what the latest developing technologies are, the latest techniques. And we've appointed an academic liaison officer, and we now have academics speaking at the annual conference, as well as our non-government partners uh, as well. And that has brought some fantastic developments in the area of uh, fingerprinting, the use of gel pads, for lifting fingerprints. And I think that's a voice that is going to become stronger in the enforcement community. Many of us, myself included, are not uh, fantastic academics, but we recognise now that we need those people with these skills, these innovative ideas. One of the challenges we have with technology when an idea is brought forward to us is, how does it make me solve my case? It might be a really interesting bit of academic research, but actually, does it add value? Does it lead to the prosecution? Does it mean that the chain of evidence is more secure? And I think as enforcement opens up to academia and trust is built, we're seeing some really, really better focused pieces of research being done, which is going to add some real value in the fight against wildlife crime and indeed climate crime and and pollution crime. It's fantastic to hear that you're building these relationships because some of the discussions I've been having recently with colleagues is that even in cybersecurity, we don't do it particularly well. Sort of if there is a cyber incident, it's rare that there would be some sort of breakdown of exactly what has happened, what's gone wrong, and what learnings other people in the field can take from that incident to improve their own security. So it's it's fantastic to hear that that kind of engagement is going on. Brilliant. We focus very much on wildlife and anti-poaching, but Grant, I know you've got great expertise in anti-smuggling as well. Could you tell us a bit more about how IoT and AI is being applied in that world? Well, there's some really fantastic work going on at Heathrow Airport at the moment with Heathrow, the company, and IATA, the International Air Transport Association, and Border Force is a partner in that. And it's developing artificial intelligence for the baggage screening systems that are in place that were set up post 9-11 for securing luggage to make sure that there was nothing nefarious in the luggage. That technology is now being developed to look for wildlife products that may well be concealed in freight and in passengers' baggage. So the potential for artificial intelligence to say, 
that bag has ivory in it is probably only a matter of months away, we hope. Uh, That will be a real game changer if we can get that technology in an affordable manner out to the key countries of range. You know, we see the massive rhino horn and ivory horn seizures, but if we can disrupt the stream further up the chain, then we can actually have a real impact on the biodiversity and the conservation of our key species. Absolutely. And I was reading a case that you were involved in to do with glass eels and a staggering value of of glass eels. Is that the correct term, glass eels? Yes. Well, the Latin name is Anguilla, Anguilla, sometimes called the European eel. Excellent. So yes, a, a fantastic case supported by the National Crime Agency. Yeah, my wife was not happy when I came home that night. I was absolutely stinking of fish. But yeah, the eels were concealed under some wet fish. So, Well, and that's what got me thinking about the example you just used in that for human eyes, human senses, well, okay, you know, I'm a layperson, right? I'm sure someone who's doing this every day might be able to tell the difference. But in terms of a sealed container, telling the difference between a large amount of dead fish and a large amount of live eel, I, I can imagine it's pretty difficult. You know, I think it's useful to think of these real life examples, because I suspect most people's minds, most of our listeners will be thinking of ivory and, and those sort of unique high value single items, as opposed to large amounts of, of I mean, there were, there were thousands of eels, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't just a single shipment. This was a highly organized crime group that was trafficking eels out of Spain, and they made the mistake of transiting the United Kingdom, but again, fantastic work by the Garda Seville, who I take my heart off, absolutely fantastic investigators. But, you know, it was a European-wide operation that has now become a global operation. Uh, The trafficking of our jelly deals is what they are out of the European Union to the Far East, where they are grown on for local foodstuffs, but now more and more trafficked the finished products are trafficked into North America and Canada. So it truly is a a global trade. Um, Around that, there's lots of things. You're looking for the products as well, but the eels need to be kept cool. And one of the keys that we pick up when we see the eel smuggling in luggage is frozen bottles of water to keep them cool. So actually, what you're looking for is not necessarily the eels themselves. You're looking for those other things that will always be associated. So a bottle that's frozen solid shows up quite nicely on a traditional x-ray machine. But it's continually diverse. And again, I think one of the things that ZSL does is that our EDGE programme, which looks at some of the less iconic species, but still critically threatened to some of your reptiles, your frogs, that perhaps don't bring in the big bucks from donors, are as threatened as anything else in the world. And being able to identify those products, it's too easy to look at our elephants and rhinos and see that as the only problem. It affects anything. And you know, I'm pleased to see over recent years the pangolin, uh, the most trafficked animal in the world, start to get it, the global recognition and you know, enforcement activity that it deserves because they're almost wiped out in Asia. And the demand on the larger African pangolins is such that you know, we're looking you know, a decade, two decades, and they'll be gone. And for such a peaceful, you know, loving animal, you know, it's just a fantastic creature. And yet old traditional belief systems 
are saying, I think we estimate one killed every five minutes for the illegal trade. There just aren't enough of them, and that's got to be a key species that, well, that ZSL is working in, in the Philippines and Nepal to try and protect them. Fascinating. Thank you. Matthew, I'm conscious that we may not have gone into all the details of the technology today. Are there any cases that you think we could focus on in terms of application of IoT? You know, not specifically conservation cases, but cases where that technology might be applied in this instance, do you think? I think we're already in quite a good position. We've got quite a good spread of quite practical technologies to deploy. And I think this range is sort of the full gamut from sort of our embedded systems to the communication technologies. So we've seen new developments such as LoRa for very sort of long range, low power communication, low data rates as well. And we've sort of got like a nice mix now of if we do need to communicate sort of a high rate of information, then we do have sort of domain specific technologies for that. If we want to communicate things at a very low data rate and save our battery power of the devices, say uh, radio collars on the animals, then we have those technologies as well. I think in terms of machine learning and the the analysis, the key thing here as always is data. So do you have good data? Is it high quality? Um, we're seeing the techniques such as deep uh, neural networks in machine learning work very well. So you can get very high accuracy rates. And I thought it was very interesting you raised that um, people look for these frozen bottles of water in the luggage because these are signals that machine learning can be quite good at picking up on, but not just that there's a frozen bottle of water, but there's other signals that people might also be missing and that might be a sort of a lot smaller, a lot harder to pick out maybe from sort of your X-ray of a luggage. The other side of this is that we want to make sure that we're not training humans to rely on these results all the time. So if your machine learning um, algorithm has a high number of false negatives, so you incorrectly detect something as not being there, that might potentially mean that the machine learning algorithms are missing some of these signals that indicate that maybe there's sort of wildlife or some ivory that's trying to be smuggled. So it's important that we make sure to keep that human element key as well. So we call this sort of keeping the human in the loop. So we can have our nice, very intelligent, data-driven machine learning algorithms, but there's also that human component that's making sure that anything that the machine learning potentially is classifying incorrectly, the humans can also pick up on additional information. But then that's also useful because that can be fed back into the machine learning algorithms and the, the additional training might be able to improve the accuracy. Just picking up on, on the, that point there about machine learning, one of the, the big advantages of actually having a system make your decisions for you is it helps tackle corruption. Corruption can only take place with the support of humans. So actually, if you have a system that is selecting your examinations for customs, that's telling you, that's directing your activity, it becomes much harder for the crime groups to manipulate through corrupt officials because they don't have the control over what it is that they're doing. And I think that's one of the key advantages of whether it be large scanners for freight containers or things like that. You take that decision away from the individuals who will be doing the examination. And that it has to be a key step to tackling corruption, which blights the wildlife trade. It's, 
It's unlike any other crime group that I've been involved in. Um, it almost seems to be acceptable for law enforcement officials to participate in wildlife crime. And we've seen it from the highest levels of the army in Cameroon to corrupt police customs officers uh, across the globe. And I think that's another fascinating attack vector as well for these kinds of systems. Because if someone can introduce bias into the data that's being used to train these machine learning models, then we might see them making decisions that favor those corrupt officials. So there's definitely sort of a very interesting, I think, I already feel like there's interesting science that needs to be done here. Brilliant. Thank you very much, both of you. This has been a fascinating conversation for me, especially. This was an area that before researching for this podcast, you know, I have to admit I had not fully considered. And when I started scratching the surface, I revealed just how fascinating, how much potential there is and the impact IoT can have in wildlife conservation. And that's what we hope to achieve with this podcast is highlighting the role of IoT in, um, in conserving the world, really, including its animals. So thank you very much it's been fascinating i've learned a lot and i hope our listeners have learned a lot so thank you for joining us and thank you very much for having us a special thank you to dr alan chamberlain for the ai generated music that we've used throughout the episode if you'd like to find out more on this or some of the other work that we do at petrus the national center of excellence for iot system Cybersecurity, please visit our website at petrus-iot.org Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you'll join us next time at The Edge.